The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. The providence of God is interesting. I decided to preach on this topic this morning without really fully connecting the dots that I'd be following the dedication of an adopted son by speaking about adoption of sons. That's where we're going this morning, and I honestly didn't plan this like this, but I think maybe God has meant it to be so that we would have a living kind of an illustration in our minds throughout this whole time that we can kind of see it in a different light. So I'm going to pray that he would open our eyes to that and would help us to to connect with what we're going to be talking about this morning in, in perhaps an important way for us. So let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for the fact that we can call you Father. We, of course, can call you Lord and King and Master and a whole host of words of that sort, but we can also call you Father, or as the language of the Bible encourages us, Dad. Not because we are physically joined to you in some way, we are we are not your children in that sense. But you have made us men and women and boys and girls, you have made us children. You've given us the right to become children of God. You've given us the right to call you Dad. To draw near to you and to talk to you like that in a personal way. I'm thankful for that. And I pray, Lord, that you would, by power, work in us a softening, maybe a, a gentling that would teach us something of the intimacy that exists now between us and you as father and son. And I say son carefully. It's father and son. Teach us what that's like. Teach us what it means. Teach us to appreciate it and give us grace to remember it. You've accomplished something special in the Gospel for us. And I pray, Lord, help us to see it to grab it and to live in it. It is not complicated, but I find, Father, that I forget it often. Forget what it means. So help us this morning. Would you commission your Spirit who lives in each of us now that we have been made sons of yours, would you commission your Spirit to open our eyes to this to plant it more deeply within us and, and to enable us to live off of it. Let Him have His way in us this morning, I pray. And Father, for those here who don't know You as Father, perhaps know some concepts about You, but are still estranged, still distanced, still in bondage, by Your Spirit's power would You open their eyes to see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, by which we can be made sons. 
Give grace this morning, I pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, help us open our eyes and teach us for your glory and for the good of us, your children, I pray it. Amen. So we're talking about the adoption of sons this morning. And just to be clear, this is a biblical doctrine that is about something spiritual. We are are not talking about the choosing of individual human beings to adopt another human being into their physical families. We're talking about God adopting people into his family, spiritually speaking. And so doing, I'm basically preaching a topical sermon this morning, which is unusual for me. So if this is your first time here, this is not our usual format. I I usually preach through books of the Bible. And as we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians, we've come to a couple of things that I think that from time to time it is necessary and helpful to preach a topical sermon. And we've found some things this morning in, in 1 Corinthians that can make it helpful for us and maybe even necessary for some of us to think about this topic of adoption. So we've turned to look at that using a passage in Galatians to to touch on it. But what we've seen throughout the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians are a number of different things, all kind of circling around the idea of division or, or discord or conflict in the church. He's addressing a variety of topics, but all of them have this kind of common denominator. It's been helpful for us to see that. We've been talking about it quite a bit. That's what he's been addressing. But what's more important for us to see is how it is he goes about addressing it. How it is he goes about attacking this problem of division to to fix it, to put it back together. Because as he does that, what it points out to us is what the real problem is. The real problem that lies behind the division, and that's the real problem that lies behind all kinds of other problems in life. This church, this church in Corinth, knows the gospel, knows the good news about what God has done in Jesus, and is kind of while believing it, it sort of set it aside and walked off to live by some other values and by some other means. And when that happens, in their case, division broke out and all kinds of other stuff breaks out. And so what Paul's been doing for chapters now is lifting up in front of their eyes the message of the gospel, the good news about what God has done in Jesus, not what we do. Not what we do. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not about what we do. It's about what God has done. And Paul's been preaching that to them. We've seen that a lot as well. We've been reading through 1 Corinthians and talking about the gospel. However, as we do that, we should be aware of something. That in mentioning the gospel, while there are, you can write it down in a few sentences, there are a number of different aspects or maybe facets of implications of ramifications of the gospel. So it's got a core and then it kind of spreads out and you can talk about it in a number of different ways. And to have those number of different ways readily available to you on the, on the tip of your tongue or in the forefront of your mind can be very helpful as you're trying to use the gospel to motivate you, to change you in heart to live in a way that pleases God. Our physical bodies grow best when we eat a wide variety of nutrients. And similarly, spiritually we grow best when we eat a wide variety of the implications, the aspects, the ramifications of the gospel. For example, 
If we were only to preach to ourselves how at the cross God has accomplished our justification, which you recall is a legal term, justification related to a word righteousness, it's it's from the courtroom, one of the verdicts in that day, to be justified, not guilty, or condemned, guilty. There's the two verdicts. And, And in the gospel, with Jesus coming and dying on the cross, God has accomplished for us our justification. He has rendered us not guilty. Amen to that. But if that's all that we preach constantly to ourselves, we would become firmly convinced, I am right in God's eyes. I have right standing before God. But that would be incomplete. You recall even 1 Corinthians 1.30 talked about Christ as our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Well, let's pick redemption. If I were to talk about, that word's borrowed from the slave market, having been the bond cut, I'm set free from bondage to the law and to sin. If I were to talk about and to preach to myself in Christ, in the gospel, I have been redeemed. I have been liberated. I have been set free from bondage to law and sin. It is no longer my master. I'm not obligated to sin. Praise God for that. It's still incomplete, though. Set free from that, purchased out of that, where do I go? Somebody paid a price and bought me from that, where do I go? That's the other side of it, and that's what's going to bring us to adoption. It's been implied throughout this letter that where do I go? I go into Christ. We've seen repeatedly in Christ, in Christ throughout chapter 1. We saw in chapter 3 that simply put, I'm Christ's. We saw in chapter 1, as I said, redemption. Well, those words are hinting at something. Where do I go? I'm put into Christ. I become Christ's. I've been redeemed to be Christ's. Which is going to connect me, my mind, to adoption. That's what we're going to speak about this morning. As I said, I'm going to look at Galatians to flesh that out a little bit. I'm going to see some of the same words from these chapters picked up in Galatians. And we could go somewhere else. Nathan this morning read from Romans 8. Very same material there in Romans 8. I'm going to use Galatians though this morning. And I hope, my, my hope this morning is that what you'll take out of this is another facet of what God has done at the cross for you. And that there will be something else for you then to remind yourself of, to preach to yourself. Day in and day out amidst life. Adoption. My main point this morning, God in Christ has adopted you as His Son. And I say Son carefully. There's meaning in that even for women and girls too, and we'll come to that in a bit. He has adopted you in Christ as His Son. Let me read Galatians. I'm going to begin in chapter 3, verse 24. And read through chapter 4, verse 7. Galatians 3, beginning verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Two observations this morning. My first one. A goal of the Gospel that only happens in the Gospel, a goal of the Gospel is your adoption as a son of God. And this is unique in the gospel. It's what God is doing, adopting you. It's what God is doing. Adoption is an act of God. It is not an act of us. Like any human adoption, the the one being adopted doesn't initiate it, doesn't decide to, to do it, and in most cases doesn't even know it's been done until after the fact. God has acted to adopt us. Picking up the end of verse 24. We are justified by faith, it says. Last couple words there. There's that word, justified, not guilty. Made righteous before God the judge. So he's talking to people who are clean in God's eyes. Which is not all of us here, I'm sure. So I need to be clear right, right from the get-go that what we're talking about here, what I'm reading about, what I'm going to be explaining is something that is precious and awesome, but not reality for every single one of us. There is some sense, and the Bible talks about it, there is some sense in which every single person on the planet is a child or an offspring of God. The book of Acts talks about it. But I need to be very careful. The sense in which every single one of us is a child of God is simply in the way that He has made every single one of us. He has made us. We owe our existence to Him, every single one of us. We owe our, our sustenance to Him, every single one of us. But unfortunately, every single one of us has walked away. Like a child that raises up his fist against her, against his mother, against his father, maybe even strikes him, there is something deeply wrong about that. Every single person on the planet, in this sense, 
is a child of God. One who owes his very existence, her very existence to God, but has walked away and clenched fist is in rejection of him. What we're talking about, though, is post that, post something remarkable that God has done to make that all right, to fix it. We talk about the word justified by faith. I plead with you this morning. Listen to this. What God has done, the first piece, long before we get to adoption, we have to talk about God sending His Son to the earth to make for justification. God sending His Son to earth to make a way for our sin to be forgiven. For, for this rebellion against Him to be removed. For guilt to be done away with. And that's what God has done on the cross in Jesus. God sent His Son, God in flesh, to the earth to go to the cross, to pay at that cross the penalty for our sin. And by faith, those who trust Him in that, He renders as a verdict, not guilty. It is an awesome thing, but it is a critical thing. Apart from that, nothing that I say the rest of the morning applies. I plead with you, give careful thought to that. Apart from faith in Christ's cross, you stand not justified, but condemned. But, having been justified by faith, God does something. The emphasis is on faith in 24 and 25 and 26. It's on faith repeatedly. Trust Him. So don't be confused by the, by the part there about baptism. When He talks about baptism in verse 27, for as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, the New Testament talks about baptism quite a bit. But the New Testament doesn't know the difference between a Christian who's been baptized and a Christian. Because all Christians are baptized. And even today, all Christians should be baptized. Don't get confused. The emphasis is on faith. And be baptized. But faith is the issue. Justification, rendered not guilty before God, comes when you believe what He has done on the cross. Not when you're baptized. Not when you're baby dedicated. When you believe. But having believed, He does something marvelous. He has made us sons. See how He continues. For as many as you, uh, in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. You've all put on Christ. All of you, Jew, Greek, male, female, all of you, one in Christ. Which is special. Verses 1 to 3 of the next chapter, it didn't used to be. There's an analogy there in verses 1 to 3, pointing us back at a previous time. He mentions Abraham in verse 29. I'm going to come back to him later. 
But that kicks him back into a previous time when there was a promise made to people and they knew I will one day receive an inheritance, but right now I'm still locked up. I'm still like a little child under a guardian, under a manager, not set free to enjoy all that's been promised to me. That's the situation in the Old Testament. And now in the Gospel, God has done something remarkable for us. In due time, verse 4, He sent His Son and changed everything. He sent His Son in due time, born under a woman, born under law, so as to redeem those. There's our word from 1 Corinthians. So as to buy out from that bondage and to set free those who trust Him. So that, underlying a little so that there, there's intention. Does verse 4 say, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive. There's an order of reasoning here. God sent Christ to redeem, to adopt. A goal in the Gospel is your adoption. The making of you a son. God's after you. Now, as I said, there are many facets of the Gospel. Lots of other things He's doing too. But God was after you. Christian, think about this. God sent His Son to set you free so that you could be adopted. You could receive, the NIV puts it as, I think, full rights as sons. Adopted. Think about this. Every facet of the Gospel is marvelous, but some of them, like justification or sanctification, are impersonal and kind of legal. They're about a rendering of a verdict in a courtroom or the removing of, of a penalty or the changing of, of a standing before a code. Adoption is personal. Adoption is, this is the closest I'm going to come to a definition this morning, adoption is an act of God that gives to you an interpersonal Status. It gives to you a relationship. For example, in the eyes of the state of Utah, I have no guilt. I haven't broken any laws. There aren't, that I know of, there aren't any warrants out for my arrest. I pay my taxes accurately. And on time, so, in the eyes of the state of Utah, there is therefore now no condemnation on me. Right? And if you ask any official, any judge, any police officer, any sheriff, any court in the state to look me up on their records or on their computer, they'll all say, Steve who? I find no record against him. We have no beef with him. We have no argument with him. Which says, at the best, that I'm a nobody 
to the powers that be in the state of Utah. There isn't anybody in any police station or any courtroom that spends any time at all thinking about me or searching for me or caring in the least about what happens to me. If I break my arm, if I'm worried about my financial situation, if I get cancer, if a loved one of mine dies, if I'm worried about my struggle with lust, nobody thinks about it, nobody cares. I exist in a state of benign neglect with the state of Utah. They let me do my own thing. God's purpose and God's actual accomplishment in the gospel is not like that. He did not intend and he has not actually simply acted to remove guilt off of you, to leave you alone in a state of benign neglect, to go do whatever you want. And if you break your arm or if a loved one dies, if you get cancer, if you're worried, I don't know and I don't care. That is not what happens in the gospel. Praise God for it. He removes off of you guilt. And there is therefore now no condemnation. But that's not the end. That is so that there will be no barrier and He can take the next step and grab you and bring you into His family. He was after you. From the very beginning... He sent His Son to redeem you so that you could be adopted. He's been chasing you down for eternity. Which is really good news. Like human parents adopting, it costs you something. But you pay the cost, the money, the time, the endless paperwork, the home visits, etc., 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 etc. You pay the cost to get the child. Not because you had time and money to blow. You do it to get the child. And one facet of the gospel is that God has done it to get you, to claim you, To the praise of His glorious grace. He's after you. Chasing you down. To bring you into relationship. To the praise of His glorious grace. And on and on and on through eternity. You will sit as an adopted son. Enjoying all that you have inherited from Him. Worshipping Him along with all of his other children, that he is equally chased down and, and obtained. And it will be to his glory and to your eternal good. He's been after you. A goal of the Gospel that happens only in the Gospel is that you get adopted as a son of the living God. Which then means what else? What else do I get? Well, that's the second point. God has adopted each of us. If you're a Christian, He's made you a son. 
which means even more for you. So here's the second point. As an adopted son, you have God's loving presence with you in all things. In all things. Why does he adopt us as sons? So that he can give to you his loving presence in all things. The second point is found in the conclusion section. I said the conclusion sections of this passage because structurally this passage, as it moves through chapter 3, it kind of rises to a point and then drops down to an illustration and rises to a point again. And those two conclusion sections there have a similar idea going on in them, which is where I'm primarily drawing this this second observation. Chapter 3 essentially says, In Christ we are all sons of God, verse 29, and if Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And 4, 6, and 7, Because your sons... God has given us His Spirit, so if a son, then an heir through God. This idea of heir exists in both of those places and it's being illustrated in the middle, which is one to three. So we've got to think about heir for a little bit. And it's at this point that the language of son begins to make sense. Because back in the culture of that day, heirs or inheriting things and being a son were tied together. Daughters didn't inherit usually. I'm not saying that this is God's idea that women should be never allowed to inherit. I'm saying that was what the culture did. And so God's trying to communicate some things in a way that people will understand. To say that you have been set free from being a slave and made a daughter, in that time would have rung a little hollow. You've been set free from being a slave and made a son. Hmm. An heir. Hmm. That's what he wants to underline. So if it helps you, women, if it helps you to change out son and put in air, you can do that too. But I think it might actually be just odd enough on your ear that it might help remind you of something. So I would encourage you to use son. Say, I'm a son. It's okay if I I can call myself the bride of Christ. You can call yourself sons. (laughs) Might help. So we're talking about air, but an air of what? Well, One huge problem with what I'm doing this morning, dropping in in the middle of a book, is that I'm dropping in in the middle of an ongoing discussion. This is fundamentally why I preach through books, is that by necessity I'm taking something out of its context. But if you know the larger context, you know some of what's been going on in Galatians. For a chapter or so now, Paul has been discussing what was going on with God and Abraham and Jesus, and he's been talking about how God made a promise to Abraham. And he's using it, the main point is he's using it to underline salvation by grace through faith, not by law. That's his main point. It's not my main point this morning, so this is part of the problem of doing what I'm doing. We are picking up on some of what he is arguing here, though, God made a promise to Abraham. God promised something to Abraham way back here that was going to come to fulfillment 
There somewhere. And Paul makes the point in chapter 3, God made a promise to Abraham and to his offspring after him. And, and quite interestingly, he underlines that's offspring in the singular. God was communicating, Abraham, I have a promise for you that's going to be fulfilled in your offspring, your particular offspring, your one offspring. Some point down the line there. Believe me. And Paul further makes the point, who do you think that one particular singular offspring is? Jesus. Christ, the Messiah. So think of it like like an hourglass. God made a promise to Abraham and to his offspring. And you think of all the people descended from Abraham, all the tribes and whatnot. It's boiling down to the center part of the hourglass. That's Jesus. He's the offspring. He's the heir of everything that God promised to Abraham. And what we find out here, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Or as Romans 8 says, co-heirs with Christ. Pull it down here to, and go like that. That's all of us. In Christ, heirs with Jesus of what was promised to Abraham. So follow my steps. He sent Christ to redeem us so that you could be a son. So that now being a son, you are an heir. An heir of everything promised to Abraham and delivered to Christ. There's a bucket poured into the top of this thing, maybe like a funnel, poured in the top, and it flows through Christ and dumps out on all of us who are standing in the bottom of the hourglass. Well, what was promised to Abraham? At that point, this whole discussion sort of goes boom and could get really big. You were sitting on your sofa one afternoon and you placed your faith in Christ. And you thought it was just about you being forgiven of your sin. And suddenly you find out, actually, it was about you being stuck into, grafted into, a multiple thousand year deal. Something that was in God's mind in eternity past and was first written into history several thousand years ago in the beginning chapters of Genesis and is going on now through us, and it will go on for however long the, the, this earth lasts, and then into eternity. You, on your sofa that afternoon, got plugged into a really big plan. You became part of what God said to Abraham. Which I have to summarize in just a couple of sentences, because this gets really big. You could summarize it like this. God said to Abraham... Look at the stars. So shall your offspring be. I promise you, Abraham, I'm going to give you a multitude of people that no one can count. A people actually not even just from Israel, but from every tongue and tribe and nation. Through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. All the nations of the earth. A countless people. And secondly, Abraham, look around you. Look at the land. Everywhere you put your foot I'm going to give it to you. A place to be. 
And thirdly, and this is the one that shows up in our passage, so the one I'm going to emphasize. Look at the stars, look at the land, and look at me. I make a covenant with you, Abraham, and your offspring after you to be God to them, he says in Genesis 17. There will be a multitude of people living in a place of promised rest with God intimate in their midst. And throughout the Bible, it's repeated again and again and again. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will be their God. Their God. That's you. You're included in that. Now, there's a lot more to be said about that. As I said, because boom, it's a huge discussion. But to bring it back down to our passage, God promised Abraham... I'm going to give you a people and I will be God intimately to them. How does that come about? Well, we can look at our passage and say in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God has sent the Spirit of His Son. The very same Spirit that rests on and fills up God the Son rests on, dwells in, and fills up me and you. On His Son with a capital S and on His sons with lowercase s. You need to stop and take that in for a second. The very same Spirit. When Jesus walked the earth, the Spirit came and, and descended on Him and landed on Him like a dove. You know that, that story? He depended on the Spirit. He walked in the power of the Spirit. The New Testament is clear, emphasizing that point. God indwelt God the Son. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. And that very same Spirit lives in you. If you're a Christian. You don't have a little less of God or, or half of God in you. You have access intimately to God, period. Just like God the Son did. You're not God, but you have access to Him intimately. Much better than Him being like in the room with us is Him being in us. And He comes in, the verse says, Sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying. The Spirit comes crying. The Spirit comes calling out, Abba. Another way of saying, Father. Another way of saying, Dad. Jesus, when Jesus walked the earth, remarkably, everybody got upset about this, remarkably called God His Father. Talked about Him in a very personal, unusual, somewhat offensive way. 
And now that same Spirit lives in us and gives us the right and the ability to call Him by the very same intimate term, Dad. To relate to Him. You have that right now. He sent His Son to redeem you, to adopt you, to make you an heir of the promises made to Abraham. And in particular, the one I'm emphasizing here this morning in this passage, is to give you the presence of God personally, intimately, even dwelling within you. I think that you would profit from preaching that to yourself regularly. I think that because as I look at myself in the midst of the all things of life that came at us from the end of 1 Corinthians 3, in the midst of the all things, the world, life, death, present, the future, talked about this a few weeks ago, all those things you cannot control, all those things that are a threat to us, in the midst of that, to call out, Dad, help, and to find that He's there whenever whatever happens, I think that would be a blessing to you. And I think, and the reason I'm saying I think is, this is at least where I live, and I think you live there too. I think it would be a blessing to you because how I work is that I commonly, I forget that, and I move over here and I look at the all things that happen to me, and I believe either that it's up to me and my own resources to address them and solve them and conquer them, or that they are evidence that at best I live in benign neglect with God. Surely, he must have forgotten. Look at this. Stuff happens, doesn't it? I'm not talking about you got a hangnail. I'm talking about stuff. That happens. And in those moments, is it not natural for us to think, well, God must have left me here. And, and in that moment to preach to yourself, no, I am an adopted son. Dad. This, this was one of your goals in the cross, is to bring me into a union with you in the midst of this right now. You have not left. This is what that's for. Right now, you are my father, my dad, here with me. I realize that some of us have fathers that you don't want to be there with you in those sorts of situations. I understand that. But I also think that you know what kind of father you would want there. He's that kind of father. He's the kind of father that's good to you. That knows what's best and is accomplishing it. That maybe when he brings hardship is like a father disciplining a son. But he's disciplining you as a son because he loves you. Not because he doesn't care and can't be bothered. And to preach that to yourself in the midst of those all things, I think would bless you. Differently than it does to remind yourself that you're forgiven of sin and there is no condemnation. You see, preaching a different aspect of this strikes you differently. 
Brothers and sisters, He looks on you now and always intended to make it so that He could look on you now as a dearly beloved child of His. A son. Shaping, disciplining, growing, but beloved. And He has done this in the cross for you. I encourage you, remind yourself of it regularly. Preach to yourself. In the cross, God has adopted me as His Son. And He stands with me. Beside me. Lovingly attached to me. And bids me like a father always bids a child. Come. Come and talk to me. I'm there for you. I will intervene to sustain you and defend you. Come. He is your Father. Pray to Him as such. Trust Him as such. Let me pray. Father, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would You make it so that You are worshipped, that Your name is hallowed in this world. Bring it to pass. Continue what You promised to Abraham and are fulfilling through Christ in us now, bringing in a numerous people. Continue that. And work out there and work in here in my heart that Your will would be done. And Father, meet our daily needs, please. We have so many. We need bread to eat. We have health needs. We need strength in our struggle against sin to lead us not into temptation. Lead us away from temptation and deliver us from the evil one who hates us and seeks to kill us. Deliver us from him, Lord. We need your help. Thank You that You have not just made me and my brothers and sisters here clean in Your eyes, but You have actually made relationship. You've drawn us near. I thank You for that. And I pray, Father in Heaven, would You also be quite clearly to us the Father here on earth and the Father even dwelling within. Be God near us. Spirit of God, I thank You for communicating God to us. For caring to grow us and refine us and change us. For giving us power in witness and for giving us power in our struggle against sin. For giving us encouragement and comfort in our times of sorrow. I thank You, Spirit of God. And I thank You, Son of God, for being obedient to the Father Submitting yourself even to death on a cross that you might 
win the right to inherit the nations. To claim us even and to let us be a part of it. I am thankful for what you've done. And I pray, God, that you would grow in us a dependence and a tenderness and a softness before you. I need that in myself. I find that I don't often think of you well in soft terms. And for those, my brothers and sisters here who, who are in that camp, would you particularly bless us and enable us to, to think of you softly and kindly, to make words like love make sense to us. Thank you, Lord. For in due time, sending your Son to set us free from law and to adopt us and make us heirs. You have been kind. To the praise of your glorious grace, we say thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.